The Start On Demand. On demand. If you could greenlight one major infrastructure project in Winnipeg, which one would it be? The City of Winnipeg has a new working group to try to figure out the best way to handle road construction moving forward. And we got some great suggestions from listeners on where the city should be putting its focus first. Alberta is looking to drop the minimum wage for workers aged 13 to 17 from 15 bucks an hour to 13. Is that good or bad? Another church in Manitoba is dealing with shocking vandalism. And McNabb was on location today for the latest Habitat for Humanity build. So that got us thinking about shops class. Did you like it? Were you good at it? Which classes did you take? I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb on location. This is the Tuesday, May 28th podcast for The Start. Alberta businesses will soon be able to pay some workers less than the current minimum wage. As Global's Tom Vernon reports, it's one of several changes being introduced by Alberta's UCP government in an attempt to kickstart the Alberta economy. Minimum wage is going down for students under the age of 18 starting June 26. These are one of the changes being made to the Labour Code in Bill 2. It will be for students. You have to be enrolled in school 17 and under. And if you only work 28 hours per week, any hours over 28 hours, you will get paid the full $15 minimum wage. This legislation also makes changes to holiday pay. It's going to return to the regular irregular system where only employees who regularly work a day or are scheduled to work on a holiday would see payment. Overtime, there's going to be changes there as well. If you bank your overtime currently, you can bank it time and a half. Well, it's going to be changed to banking on straight time. The United Conservative Party says this will save businesses money and allow more people to get into the workforce, really freeing up business, whereas the NDP say this is simply picking the pockets of workers. We're talking about part-time teenagers who are typically in high school working uh, typically 20 hours a week or less. Uh, Right now, the NDP priced a lot of them out of the labour market. You're going to run into a real problem with that 18 to 24 uh, crowd who uh, aren't getting jobs uh, because the 16 or 15 to 17 crowd are getting those jobs instead. This legislation will also make changes to how unions are certified in Alberta. Right now, if a union gets 65% of employees to sign union cards, there doesn't have to be a secret ballot vote. The UCP says that's not right. They say that any time a union is called for, there should be a secret ballot. Tom Vernon, Global News. So what happens when you turn 18? (laughs) So you've been working at a coffee shop from the time you're 16. We had this discussion not that long ago, right? At at 15, if you want a job, you need a work permit. I think it's your parents and I think the principal of your school. Unless that's changed, but at least that's the way it was in our day if you wanted to work when you were a teenager. So we're really talking about 16 and 17-year-olds working either at McDonald's, Wendy's, a local coffee shop, what have you. At 18, what, you're going to get the heave-ho and get replaced by someone who can work for $1.50 or $2 an hour cheaper? Well, we already see that kind of stuff happen all the time in companies where someone gets paid, they're a little too high on the payroll, and they're like, ah, you know what, this person's in their 50s, they're getting paid too much, let's cut them and bring in someone who's 22 years old. Well, then let's uh, let's bring that quality practice within corporations to the uh, younger generation <laughs> that you're going to get discriminated against because you're too old at 18. I don't know. I don't know about this. If you're doing a job for a company 
and they need that job done, shouldn't you be getting what everybody else is entitled to? I get the idea of trying to introduce younger people into the workforce, but I'm going to tell you this from experience. Uh, my folks, uh, my dad and my stepmom used to run a coffee shop. And uh, they would go on a hiring spree in the springtime because summer was crazy busy for them. They had ice cream and coffee, etc. And then uh, these young people, and I, I'm not casting aspersions. This was the fact. This is just how it went. And I know other people with small businesses uh, that hire younger people face the same challenges. So the schedule will come out. Oh, I need this day off. Yeah. I need that day off. Yeah. And then it's, oh, you know what? We're going on a family vacation. I need this week or these two weeks off. I'm going to, I'm doing this. It's like, well, do you really want a job or you just want to say that you have a job? Do you actually want to work? And one of my friends, I said, here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. Is just put up the schedule for next week as usual. And then the following week. You put up a schedule, close Sunday, close Monday, not enough staff. And then you put up the weeks after that, close three days, four days. And just to give them an idea, you put out the schedule for the, the next five, six weeks. And by the sixth week, you're closed every day of the week because you don't have enough staff. So that's the flip side. That's been the experience of people in my circle in terms of hiring younger people. You need dependable people, people who are prepared to work. And I don't know if this is the way to to go about things or not. Well, also this this kind of reminds me, I'm thinking of Animal Farm. You know how it's all, what was the line? All animals are born equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes, was that's, that the line? that's almost exactly right if it's not. Exactly right. So the comparison I'm making here is there's a minimum wage. So it's there's there's, there's minimum wage, but then there's a, a a different minimum wage for others. Like why even call it a minimum wage if you're not going to pay the minimum for these teenagers? Now on one hand, I kind of think well, thirteen bucks an hour is pretty good. Mm-hmm. I realize when I was a teenager, it was the 1990s, so five dollars went a bit further, and five bucks an hour went further than it does now. But do they need fifteen dollars when you're thir- fifteen bucks an hour when you're thirteen years old? Minimum's minimum, like you say. Equal is equal. I had someone say say it this way, Brett. Uh, now we we pay our workers minimum wage. Um, we would pay you less, but the government won't let us. Really, that's the attitude, right? Uh, and uh, in terms of of the way we're, we we uh, approach paying people the least amount of money possible. So I'm not sure if this is going to kickstart the economy in Alberta or not. If they feel that that's what they need to do. I guess that's what they're going to do. They'll find out uh, soon enough. Well, and we always hear from the business community as well. Whenever the minimum wage goes up, they say, you know, this is uh, prohibitive. This is getting to be prohibitively expensive. So in a, in a way, is this could this not theoretically work, though, where these businesses can hire these teenagers absolutely. at a lower wage rate? In theory, absolutely. It could. And then it can save them, save them money. And at least it didn't go as far. Back in February, the headline at globalnews.ca, Kenny to look at possibly reducing minimum wage for youth and alcohol servers in Alberta. So it wasn't just youth. It was people basically who are serving. Who are earning tips. tips. Yeah. What do you think of that? I'm not in favor of that at all. Um, Minimum is minimum. And there's a reason that people are hired to do these jobs. They bring a certain skill set to the table and they should be paid appropriately. And Otherwise, it's labor, it's workers subsidizing the business. If if your hydro bill, if your gasoline bill goes up, do you go to Shell Canada and say, can we negotiate on this a little bit? No, 
the bill is the bill. And I don't know why there's always this sense that the labor and the labor number is always negotiable. That seems to be the last piece of the puzzle. Charge what you got to charge. And if people don't want to buy your product, that means you're not competitive. I, I don't know how much more simple it could be. I got in a back and forth with one of our loyal listeners, Glenn, talking about he uh, said that when he had his first job back in the day, we, we won't out him. I'll just tell you how much he was making and then you can... Go back and do your homework. Uh, $1.75 an hour was the minimum wage when he started working. Okay. And so I did some digging, and Manitoba actually had a youth minimum wage as well up until April 1st, 1988. Oh. And I'm looking at the wage that I remember getting paid at my first job, and I think I must have fallen under that. $3.85 an hour. That's the number that sticks in my head. Okay. Back in the day doing uh, dishes and uh, busboy duties over at Fingers, the place for ribs right over here on St. James Street. So where, you think you would have been in the youth minimum wage? I think uh, because three eighty five was never a minimum wage in Manitoba for adults, shall we say, for anyone over uh, 18, year 18 and older, three fifty five, four dollars four thirty, And like I say, I'm almost certain. I made three eighty-five at my first job an oh. hour, so I must have fallen under that. Well, for me, uh, when I started working, the minimum wage was five bucks an hour. That was back in nineteen ninety-three when I started working at Taco Bell, and uh, yeah, I think by the time I left, it was maybe seven dollars. I can't remember. Uh, went to seven dollars in uh, two thousand four, and oh. then it went to seven twenty-five in two thousand five. Okay. Well, when what was it before seven bucks? You're looking at uh, six seventy five. April first, two thousand three. It went to six seventy five from six fifty. It went up twenty five cents a year from nineteen ninety nine till two thousand and nine. It went up twenty five cents incrementally every April first, except for two thousand nine when it up went up on May first. So we put this uh, on Facebook. We put a poll up on six eighty CJOB's Facebook. Uh, whether or not you think this is good or bad. And so far, 265 votes for good, 326 votes for bad. And one of the comments here, the minimum wage could and should have been left where it was. It really didn't give anyone that much more money in their pocket. However, what it did do is generate more tax dollars for the government. What would have made sense would have been to raise the BPE... So what's that, the basic personal exemption? Correct, sir. To $18,500. This would have had a huge impact on folks. Yeah, I, I, I've been arguing that for a long time. I think we've done a poor job of keeping up with uh, that aspect of economics here in Manitoba. The BPE in Manitoba, I think, is still around $10,000. In Saskatchewan, it's closer to 13000 uh, that's the point at which you start paying taxes on your income. And so uh, I think that's something that really needs to be talked about. But we spend so much time talking about things as opposed to doing them. Mm-hmm. You know, when the conservatives were in opposition, they spent a lot of time criticizing the NDP for raising the minimum wage as often as they did and suggested that the basic personal exemption be raised. And I know they raised it, however, slightly. But once again, uh, talking the talk is one thing. Let's start walking the walk 
If you think this is good for the economy, let's be bold. Let's do it. Let's make some changes. Uh, we're making bold changes as it pertains to uh, the healthcare system in our province. How about making some bold steps? If you think the basic personal exemption is the way to go, and we've we've heard in opposition the conservatives say that, let's let's lower, let's raise that level. Let's do it now. Let me bounce this one off you from Barb on Facebook. Minimum wage was never meant to be a living wage. It's meant to be an entry-level wage for an entry-level or low-skilled job. If you can't survive on minimum wage, the onus is on you to get the skills or training needed to move up the wage scale. What say you to that, Greg Mackling? I think there's uh, some validity to that. However, our economy has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades. It's it's more oriented to a service-based economy where people, there aren't, I can remember in my old neighborhood in the West End, we had uh, probably four or five different industries that people in the neighborhood would, would work in. Uh, Moore's Business Forums had a huge operation on the corner of Aaron and Wooliver. That's gone. There was a Ford uh Ford Parts Depot uh, in the West End. It, it employed dozens, if not hundreds, of people at decent wages. Those jobs are gone and are never coming back. So the face of our economy has changed dramatically in the last several decades to a more service-based economy. And it's not just teenagers serving hamburgers and French fries and pouring your coffee. A greater number of people doing those jobs are adults now, and that's their 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 way they make their living. Uh, McDonald's, and I don't like to pick on McDonald's, but they were in the news uh, in the last few days. They're buying back $66 billion worth of their shares. They're a profitable company. Big Macs and large fries are not essential services. Pay your people well, charge what you need to charge in order for people to consume those things. And then, and then we can talk about whether that's uh, wage is too high or too low. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is at Habitat for Humanity today. She's going to join us at 7.45 at 9.15. So inspired by that conversation because the idea of Loren McNabb wielding tools kind of frightens me. But it also frightens me the idea of me wielding tools. So that got me thinking about how hopeless I was in shops class. So we thought we'd have a conversation about shops. Jeff Braun's here. Cam Poitras is here. Jeff Fortier is here. Jeff Fortier. (laughs) You're a drummer, so you like to hit things. Did you like to hit a hammer in shops class? Uh, I wasn't bad at shops class, but uh, I was afraid it was going to cut my hand off, actually. Yeah? <laughs> and there's one time I was using the uh, what's called the band saw, where the saw you know, just, it's, a, it's on a band. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah great explanation. I don't know what that is. So that... Great, great explanation. Yeah. Anyways, but I, I end up pulling the saw blade off of, uh, I guess, the wheels that it's on because it spins. Yeah. And I pulled it off, and it made loud noises, and I jump out of the way. I thought it was going to cut my hand off, like I said. And uh, Was and, it still spinning? Yeah, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> you get to shut off the machine, and uh, I was freaked out, and everyone's staring at me, and I was embarrassed, and yeah, it was just... <laughs> It was a disaster. Well, at least it was only your pride that was hurt. I know. I know. <laughs> Jeff Braun, did you take shops? Well, in our school, it's called industrial arts. And oh, I, yes. And I hated it. I hated it so much. And I, I was. it's a miracle I didn't hurt myself with a saw. I don't care for saws whatsoever. And we also had to do uh, some electrical work, house wiring and stuff in that. And I may or may not have... Uh, Accidentally, on purpose, electrocuted the teacher, who I did not care for. <laughs> whoa, <laughs> what? whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Jeff, was it safe? Yeah, go ahead. Because he'd touch it to see if it was, if you did it well. Right? And I was like, and, and I was like, oh, whoops, I forgot to take care of that part. 
That's evil. That is pure evil. Wow. That's right. Yeah, we did not see eye time. I forgot about electrical class. I think I took that at, uh, I went to school at a Cole Regent Park in junior high and then College Pierre Elliott Trudeau in high school in Transcona, but we took an electrical class in Murdoch McKay and I seemed to quite enjoy that. Uh, you ended up working a kind of job. Yeah, like I, that, right? I liked it and I was good at it. I just didn't, I was a teenager and I was more interested in uh, screwing around than getting good grades or whatever. So <laughs> you mentioned Murdoch McKay. Yeah. We have a text message here. Okay. Favorite shops class were metals and aerospace at Murdoch. Oh, wow. We thought we were being sneaky about making pipes for uh, tobacco, one eye down, <laughs> on the lathe. Our teacher would let us finish them, and then he'd confiscate them. Yet he'd always be nice to us with a Cheech and Chong movie and pizza party at Christmas break and at the end of the year. Nice. Yes. Cam sneaky, Fortress. being sneaky in the shops class and oh. making, making nefarious sorts of things. Uh, Cam Poitras, I could see doing that. Uh, yeah, not really. No. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just uh, I like to think I'm handy. Like, I like to think that I'm handy. Like, uh, I'd build a r- nice braised box for my garden, which was pretty cool. So I learned a little bit in carpentry. I did uh, uh, auto mechanics as well. I did, I just took the first year of that, and I did, it was all just, like, textbook work, which if you were, like, learning how to do anything with a vehicle out of a textbook, it's, com- it's like, almost completely useless. So uh, I didn't really learn too much out of that, uh, but yeah, I, I always enjoyed I always enjoyed shops. I you know I like working with my hands and stuff like that. So yeah, it was good. Mackling, you had a story that involved was it Sergeant Park? Sergeant Park at Isaac Brock. We didn't have uh, this is in junior high. We didn't have uh, shops in the school, so we had to go to Sergeant Park. And we had a basketball game at River Heights one day, and uh, I figured uh, I would have a self-imposed afternoon off. <laughs> And uh, I was driving down Sergeant Avenue the other day, and I looked at the school, and I had a chuckle because the doors without handles uh, on the south end of Sergeant Park School are right on Sergeant Avenue. And I can remember the day that I went boldly to that door uh, when I was supposed to be in the very same class and knocked on the door, and it just so happened that the electrical teacher was not at his desk, and I asked, hey, is Ken here? I said, Ken, let's get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we went and uh, explored Winnipeg for the afternoon, and then we went to River Heights for our basketball game. (laughs) (laughs) You skipped a lot of school, didn't you? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Greg texted us to say, I loved shops class. Metal and wood were my favorite. Still didn't stop me from being bad, though. I clearly remember gluing tools to tables and (laughs) welding vices shut. Oh, I hope my kids are not listening this morning. <laughs> I remember, uh, I think it was drafting. It was a drafting course, and I believe it was at, I think it was at Bernie Wolf in Transco, and I can't remember, but we had to do this, like, we had to pack down this weird, I don't know if it was dirt or soil or clay or what whatnot, but we had to put a mold of something in to... to form a shape and I put I, I think the thing I put in was a knight like a, a knight in armor and then we had to take the mold out and then pour in this like hot metal it felt like it was in a medieval blacksmith oh, shop neat. or something oh, okay so it, yeah we had to hold it on the, this massive sort of bar and then tilt it on its side and the metal would pour out into it like doing it. casting yeah yeah, that's cool it was cool but scary because I, I, I figured if anybody would do it if anybody would pour this on themselves that it would be me, but thankfully I did not. Molten metal. In junior high, we had to do some drafting, and the guy's punishment was to make you write lines in that specific vertical single-stroke gothic font <laughs> that was so laborious to do, and you'd just screw up. And I, I wrote so many lines. I could probably still do it by heart. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was just 
Jeff, 100 lines. <sighs> Do you remember what the lines were? Just just the alphabet, but in that style, and it took forever. <laughs> it's annoying. That, that sounds like torture. It is that time of year in Winnipeg construction season. It is the essential part of building, uh, you know, city building, right? We have to do it. But are we doing it the right way? We are hopefully about to find out. The city of Winnipeg has a new working group to figure out some best practices when it comes to road construction in our city. The group led by Infrastructure Committee Chair, Councillor Matt Allard, has been directed to recommend to Mayor Brian Bowman better ways to improve the road repair process. The group is supposed to come up with advice on improving the procurement, design and road construction process, better the road design or pardon me, road tendering process, improve communication with residents and businesses, and look at 24 hour a day, seven day a week construction in a fiscally responsible way. And I think uh, those uh, last several words are critical. Councillor Olar joined Richard and Julie yesterday afternoon on the news. Did you know the city is already utilizing 24-hour construction to speed up a couple major projects? That includes the Jubilee underpass. It is something we're doing. Uh, we're doing it uh, when, uh, when, it, when the circumstances warrant it. I know that Waverly was done uh, as well this year. And so, uh, so I've been uh, honoured to, uh, to chair this working group. Uh, it was, uh, we announced it today with uh, Mayor Bowman. And so I'll be talking to the public service and... Uh, those in, in the industry to see uh, how we might be able to, uh, to look at uh, new options for that. And it makes sense to do it in these areas like Waverly, like Jubilee. There's not houses particularly close to either of those spots. Along Chancellor, that stretch has been blocked off effectively, making it kind of one way or two ways to get out of Waverly Heights as a result of the rapid transit corridor. And I know that's frustrating for a lot of people that live in that area. Any thought to giving an opportunity to residents to weigh in who say, listen, um, if you work 24 hours, I know I might hear some stuff, but if you're in and out in a week versus working eight hour days and taking three weeks or a month to do this, I'll pay the price. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be I'd be happy to hear feedback from uh, from residents. Uh, I mean, this is a stakeholder working group. Uh, I think councillors uh, we interact every day with the public. One thing we do hear, uh, or we we hear that it is an issue if you do twenty four seven in the wrong neighborhood. Uh, apparently, that's uh, that's when we really hear uh, from residents, according to to some of the stories I've heard. But so I think it's it's a matter of finding that right balance. Once in a while, Richard likes to break out a tried-and-true view of infrastructure in our city. He did it yesterday. You'll have to wait for it. Hip, hip, hooray. But really, for those that are stuck in traffic right now, uh, Marion Archibald, you need to do something there. At some point, La Jemaudière, Naren uh, Avenue, and expanding or putting an interchange there. At some point, you have to do something about Chief Pegwis Trail and complete that ring road. Do you want me to continue the list here, Matt Allard? Well, I mean, I, I think you're raising some very valid points. But, Richard, if you're talking about, uh, you know, either building one road or two, and if that is the difference between uh, two different tenders, we have to take that into account. I mean, I think uh, I heard the mayor today say that uh, there's an acknowledgement that in some cases 24-7 might cost a bit more. And if you're looking at a city, bu- uh, at a city budget where you have to balance the books 
if one project costs more, that might mean you can't do the next one. So we have to balance all of this. Oh, understood. But if we want to be part of a city that's going to grow to a million people, you got to think a little bit bigger. We're still small town. We're still thinking small town in so many ways. And yes, it's a city government. You need provincial and federal dollars here. But if you're stuck in traffic right now saying, you know what, we're still kicking and screaming to get into the 1990s, the pressure's on you to do something about it. Well, the pressure's on for sure, and I think uh, tomorrow we're having a really big discussion because we have Chief Pegwis Trails on the docket, the functional design. We have the Arlington Bridge that's on the docket. We don't have money to do either of those projects. Our debt ceiling is, uh, is coming to, to a head. We have $150 million in debt capacity. That doesn't build one of those projects. So, yes, we need a, we need a better partner in, uh, in the provincial government, that's for sure. But even with our other, other levels of government, if, if past funding arrangements are uh are what uh, are what we can expect the city's debt ceiling would only allow one of those projects to be built think, and then you have to ask yourself what that means for any any other project sorry matt allard i i think since i was a listener a long time ago richard cluche liked to talk about dragging winnipeg kicking and screaming either into the 1980s or the 1990s and and i think he's right on that in this instance hey if you had the money to build one infrastructure project in Winnipeg. What project would you build before all others? Text us. 204-780-6868 if you can follow the bouncing ball on that one. Greg asked, if you had the money for one major infrastructure project in Winnipeg, what would it be? Getting all kinds of text messages on that. A water park. Widening of Keniston is a must. Uh, an underpass at Marion, and you mentioned it, Archibald. Yep. And that same text, or you're only supposed to get one, but I think it's a good idea. Furmore Lajamodier intersection, that's a big one. Removing the all the traffic signals on the perimeter, we've been beating that drum since I think the first show you and I ever did together, Brett. Yep. And uh, we've had at least two people suggest monorail. That's right. Spencer <laughs> said monorail and someone else saying monorail. So because of that, here we have this. Six car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right. Monorail. 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 I hear those things are monorail. awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the truck could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us brain-dead slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? No good, sir. I'm on the level. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. We asked the question, we posed the question, we put a poll on our Twitter as well at 680CJOB. If you had the money for one infrastructure project... In Winnipeg, which one would you green light? And it's also the question of the day at cjob.com, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. So the question at cjob.com, the options are, Marianne and Archibald underpass, widen Keniston, remove traffic lights from the perimeter, interchange at Regent and Lajamodier, or monorail! <laughs> Those are the five options we put online, but you can t- text us any suggestion right. you've got, and we're getting all kinds. Yeah, we are getting a ton of suggestions and some pushback on the idea of removing all those traffic signals on the perimeter, not because this texter wouldn't like to see it, but just suggesting that it would be difficult uh, to find a government who would see this. Here's uh, the first text message. The chances 
Boy, oh boy, slow down, Mac. The chances of seeing no traffic lights on the perimeter are zero. You require a government willing to spend money to make money. However, road construction gives no return to the government bank account. No government is willing to take that option to the ballot box. I see it differently. I think it would be uh, terrific, not only for the economy in terms of keeping things moving, but also uh, the infrastructure projects and the amount of money that would stay in the economy here in Manitoba in building. Building those things would be fantastic. The benefits to the trucking and transportation industry. We call ourselves the the trucking capital of Canada, yet we have this horrific highway and street infrastructure. I I think there's a a lot. I like to, to talk the talk, but I prefer to walk the walk. And we don't do that as it as it pertains to uh our ideals surrounding our thoughts of where we fit in terms of the trucking industry. We have all these huge trucking companies here in Winnipeg, and we have these lousy highways. It, it really doesn't compute for me. Which stretch of the perimeter is the worst one in your estimation? Oh, that's that south, right from, uh, it would be St. Anne's uh, all the way to Waverly, mm-hmm. I would suggest, or just west Keniston. of there. Keniston. Like, to imagine that they didn't do grade separation at Keniston just makes zero sense to me. But. Well, and especially, it's it's even more frustrating at Waverly now that they've blocked it off. Like, you can't, you used to be able to go Waverly southbound through the perimeter, but they've blocked that off because they they want people to go to Keniston mm-hmm. instead. But there's still the traffic light there. But yeah, St. Anne's, St. Mary's, uh, there's an interchange of Pemina, right? There is an interchange of Pemina. Uh, uh, but then you've got Waverly, Keniston. Then there's the lights at the turnoff for LaSalle at Highway 330, which is uh, the one I'm familiar with because I'm always heading out to Kingswood. Sure. Hoping to get out there on Friday, uh, provided the weather is good. And uh, beyond that, I actually, that's where I get out usually. So I don't McGilvery. know. Could use an interchange without question. Uh, lots of spots on the uh, perimeter. And a bypass around St. Norbert, in my mind, is is absolutely critical to the long-term viability of that route uh, around Winnipeg for truckers that are either coming here or just passing through. Regina is spending, Saskatchewan, Regina is spending over a billion dollars. They're just about done the gigantic Regina bypass project. It'll be finished by the end of this year. If they can do it, so can we. I was really sad and angry when I went to CJOB.com this morning and I saw the headline, Rural Manitoba Church Shaken by Vandalism, because I thought, another one? Another church? We've been telling you over the last week about the Ukrainian Catholic Metropolitan Cathedral of Saints Vladimir and Olga on McGregor Street. The statue of St. Vladimir outside the church was vandalized last week when someone cut the head off and took a part of the staff and cross. Yeah, that head was found and returned to the church, although the staff and cross are still missing. Now, members of a small town church just outside Winnipeg are cleaning up after vandals tore through their sanctuary early Sunday. Here's Global's Joe Scarpelli. A place of worship is now a crime scene. St. Francis Xavier Parish was broken into sometime late Saturday or early Sunday morning, and the suspect, or suspects, turned the place upside down. Father Michel No had just come in for his Sunday morning mass when he saw the unthinkable. The baby Jesus taken, taken off of the statue. That's, that's pretty emotional stuff. Broken pews, shattered glass, statues toppled over. 
A fire extinguisher appears to have been sprayed in the building too. To see like a little girl and her sadness, one of the girls that comes to church here, to see her sadness was very, you know, hurtful. Father Michel giving as much information as he can to police, hoping to catch whoever did this, though he says they will be forgiven. We always forgive when somebody hurts us. It's, it's how you keep your heart open to God. We're told the cleanup will likely begin soon. Father Michel says as long as the altar is intact for the weekend, Mass will go ahead as scheduled. So, Brett, uh, you know, we're using the terminology vandalism here, but as I mentioned earlier, yesterday when I read this, and I think I might have been just as angry and, and disappointed and overall my heart hurt hearing about this, but is this not border on? Is this not beyond vandalism? Is this not a hate crime? Well, as it turns out, yesterday on the news on 680 CJOB, Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham spoke with the church's Father Michel No, and they asked him about that. Quite a few statues... Uh, broken and uh, stuff thrown all over the place. It's just a mess, just a real mess in the church. We have the statue of Mary and the statue of Joseph that were extensively damaged, and there's no way you could replace those ones. Those were antiques. Sadly, these are things that people really uh, hold to their hearts because, you know, you come here, you worship, and you have these symbols of faith so beautiful and Suddenly you walk into the church and it's a mess. You're a man of faith, but sometimes all of us as humans are faith waivers from time to time. Oh, this is not something that's going to stop the faith at all. Not at all. The church gathered in the, in the rectory on Sunday morning instead of having a mass here. And we had a mass, a beautiful little mass, and we, we prayed a prayer of forgiveness for these people who are obviously troubled people, whoever did this. And uh, we just uh, hope that all will go well. Is this a hate crime? Is that what you consider it to be? I'm not going to step out that quickly to say that it was a hate crime. But it was certainly people that don't have a heart for for the Lord, obviously. Can't really call it a hate crime, but it certainly wasn't love. That is Father Michelle No from the church in St. Francis Xavier. Once again, if you want to read more on this, it's on cjob.com, the headline, Rural Manitoba Church Shaken by Vandalism. And so this has us talking about crime overall, and it shakes the community. I think the the head uh, going missing of St. Vladimir, that, that shakes the community to its core because it's a whole other level of crime. And then we inevitably get back to the question, about meth and how much does the increase, the spike in crime that we're seeing involve meth as we had our 19th homicide reported yesterday. And it's not just homicides. It's not just death. Hospitals around Winnipeg are seeing a dramatic rise in the number of patients who have used meth needing emergency care. This is new data from the WRHA. In March of this year, 287 people arrived at emergency rooms and urgent care centers high on meth. That's nine times the volume of patients on meth compared to four years ago. I know Jeff has been sharing that with you in the news this morning, but we've, uh, you know, we need to, we need to talk about this. When I was at Concordia hospital, when my mom was ill before she passed, there was, we were in the emergency room and there was a woman two beds over who was quite clearly on meth screaming and yelling and cursing at the staff eventually was escorted out of the hospital by a police officer who knew this person they were on a first name basis mm-hmm. 
Uh, so this was clearly a frequent flyer, so to speak. And uh, that's got to be frustrating for the staff. And for it was especially frustrating for me as my mom is in distress and we're having to deal with this lunatic who's all hopped up on meth. Um, so, yeah, this is... Uh, the conversation is not going anywhere. We know we have a mental health crisis in Canada and the conversations around do we need more dedicated beds and services in emergency situations for f- people with mental health emergencies. That's a question and one that hasn't been completely answered to this point. And now we have this meth situation. I know we use the word crisis. I don't want to overuse it, but are we in a situation now where we need a separate facility like we have main street project for people who have overindulged with regard to alcohol? Do we need a place that's safer for staff, safer for the public and safer for those that are going through these mess psychoses in order to, to, to give them an opportunity to get off of the meth and find out how we can help them. We now welcome a good friend of 680 CJOB, Darren Dunn. He is the CEO of Assiniboia Downs. And we uh, last week we were featuring his old job as a race announcer at the Downs in an exciting contest to celebrate CJOB night coming up at Assiniboia Downs. But Darren, unfortunately, we speak to you this morning because of uh, some very sad news from uh, your part of the world. Uh, first of all, good morning and, and thanks for taking some time to, to talk to us about someone very special. Tell us about Ardell so- uh, Sailor, please. Sure, good to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, more of a somber situation compared to last week for sure. Uh, just an icon in our industry. Um, one of the top trainers at Assiniboia Downs all time. Uh, passed away suddenly, uh, very unexpectedly. Uh, early evening Sunday. And caught us all off guard, to say the least. And uh, and we're still uh, kind of reeling with that, uh, sorting that out and dealing with it. And uh, 12 leading trainer titles, by far and away the most by anybody who's ever competed at Assiniboia Downs. And that's a record that's so far up there, it'll never be equaled or surpassed. I can say that with certainty outside of that. It's uh, trying to deal with uh, the family. His wife happened to be here. They're from Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, fortunate on one hand that she was on site and she periodically would come up and visit and happened to be here when when things uh, well when the episode started uh, and then ultimately concluded with his passing. Now Ardell Sailor, you you said he's from Rapid City. What's the connection to Winnipeg? How did he end up spending so much time here? Honestly, a love of Cinnaboya uh, Downs and Manitoba and and the friends he made here over the years. His family first uh, set foot here in the '60s. He uh, returned meaningfully in the 90s, early 90s, as a horse trainer and found great success here. And as I mentioned, developed a lot of friendships. Very, very strong, competitive individual, but one who uh, was was friendly uh, away from the track, if you will. Uh, Hyper-competitive when the horses were in the gate. Uh, All business, hands-on kind of guy, but a big guy with a soft heart uh, uh, when the races were over each day. Obviously, condolences to you, Darren, and the entire family out at Assiniboia Downs, and and of, in particular to Ardell's family. But try and take us inside the world of Assiniboia Downs and, and talk about how close-knit a community this is for folks that are unfamiliar with what happens at your facility year-round, essentially. Sure, it's a, it's a fair comment. It, it's, a, uh, it's a community where everybody does know everybody, uh, 
and yet they're very, very competitive and, and friendly at the same time. It's uh, an industry that draws uh, people from far and wide, and hence uh, an individual who, you know, obviously an American uh, from South Dakota, but spent so many years here and showed that kind of loyalty. Uh, it's why everybody's quite devastated and uh, and trying to uh, sort of pick things up. He had a very large stable here this year, which uh, 40 horses. He normally had the largest stable at Assiniboia Towns, many years topping 50. So there's a lot of questions right now on how to uh, how to move forward uh, with that loss, and at the same time, there's a lot of horses that uh, need to be distributed. They're, they were bought for and uh, are competitive in this local market. I, you know, make the assumption they'll be uh, taken into the local market via sale or other, and uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's something where we're we're all talking to each other and certainly banded together. We lowered our our flags immediately, and we'll have a moment of silence before the first race tomorrow night and and uh, just trying to work with the family gently to uh, establish a, a local uh, memorial situation uh, before they uh, establish their own uh, with their family back in South Dakota. Now, Sailor went on to train uh, 1,300, over 1,300 winners. Why did he have such a knack? You know, I think it was just something that uh, was born and bred into his family. He was exposed to it at an early age from his father back in the 60s and uh, just something that uh, you know, people develop talents in different ways. And his uh, surrounded horse flesh. Uh, he had the ability to go to usually Kentucky sales in the off season. He'd look for some uh, what I would call bargain basement prices uh, after the large uh, horse race industry firms would uh, would vacate the sales. The ones that would be buying horses for the Triple Crown, he would stick around at these large sales and try and find the horses for two thousand, four thousand, six thousand dollars rather than the six figure numbers. And he had an amazing eye to do that. And then not just buy them, but then develop them. And that takes a long time. And uh, he had many champions. He had one of the greatest all-time horses to ever race at Assiniboia Downs in Beluga Bowl, who was a multi-champion, won the Derby, won the Gold Cup three years in a row, which was unprecedented, and had uh, more stake wins than I can even begin to count. Uh, he just had an incredible knack for developing horses, and uh, and the success, uh, you know, leaves an impact on in our industry for years to come. I'm obviously a big hockey and a big football guy, Darren. So we, we know that uh, there are individuals, there are scouts and people who are, have an eye for talent on the football field and on, on the ice. How do you ever get an idea of how a horse might perform in this realm uh, without really knowing or without even really seeing them perform on that front? Because if you're buying them as a, is it a yearling, the, the proper terminology? Yes. How, how, do you, how do you understand other than uh, their bloodlines uh, if they've got a chance to make it in this world? Well, you know, that's a good question. And i got to say that, I mean, it does start, as you indicated, with bloodlines. And you're looking at the, the lineage through the years that, uh, that might make the most sense relative to can they sprint, should they be able to run a long distance. And then it's looking at their conformation or their physical build, looking at their legs, looking at their hind end, and uh, looking at their shoulders. And that's something you can't... uh, It's very difficult to teach, I would say. And as you mentioned, scouting in in our sport and what Ardell did, he was the scout, he was the coach, and he was the general manager. And that's the way it works in horse racing. And filling all three of those roles, he would... uh, he would see the animal through from prospect to uh, to production, if you will. Darren Dunn, CEO of Assiniboia Downs, joining us live on 680 CJOB. And before we let you go, Darren, I understand that uh, sailors' horses uh, continue to win uh, right up until this weekend. Well, you know, it's interesting, and maybe it's uh, 
maybe a karma factor, but he uh, he won two races the very evening before he passed, uh, which was his first double win of the season. I know it picked his spirits up significantly, and uh, he's going to have a couple of horses racing Wednesday night that might carry that karma factor as well. Uh, outside of that, his son's flying in from West Virginia. He used to be a trainer at Assiniboy Downs, so we'll work with him and his uh, family to sort out uh, the inventory and uh, how to move forward. All right, Darren, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time and our condolences to, to you and the entire family at Assiniboia Downs. Thanks kindly, gentlemen. Mackling and McGarry with McNabb on location, Habitat for Humanity build. Loren, have you had the chance yet to wield a tool? No, I did pick up a hammer and then I quickly put it back down because I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with it next. But, but basically what I've been trying to do is just introduce you guys and our listeners into the, the build that's going on this year in the North End and, of course, the family. And I think they will let me access some power tools as soon as I wrap up here. No, they won't. But, you know, guys, if I can, I'd like... They, maybe they won't, but he might let me hold one or pass it pass it over. I'm very good at carrying wood, I've been told, so maybe that'll be my duty for the day. But you know who is excellent at uh, working on-site is this year's homeowner. Her name is Maureen, and I just want to introduce everyone to, you, na- to her now because she's actually become a bit of a pro at this, Maureen, because you lived near a build a few years ago, and that got you thinking maybe I could get my family into our home one day. Yeah, it was right across the street from me, and when me and my girls were watching the the process it was it was very enlightening motivational and inspiring for us and then so yeah we thought why not try that's that's the least and most that we could do is give it a shot so marine is a mom of three teenage girls you can imagine the space that they'd need to get things done she's telling me this morning guys that her this house that's going up here in the north end will give them at least three times the space and it's my understanding you had some tears in your eyes when you walked in because you don't even have a dinner table you don't have room for a dinner table no, and when I first moved in our first house, I did have a, a large dinner table with six chairs, and I actually shoved it in one of the bedrooms because I thought, well, I didn't even have a bed at that time, so I'll sleep on the couch, and my girls will have the upstairs kind of loft type thing, which is two bedrooms. But So then eventually as they got older, and as I said, we were growing into our home, I had to get rid of our kitchen table that was shoved in this little bedroom, and eventually made that a bedroom so yeah we don't have a kitchen table and it just brings me back to memories of family and dinner and things that my mom always provided for us as children that I can't wait to do for my kids. I know you're getting emotional just talking about it because you're a mom and you want to do best for your kids and I think the idea this morning is that you can see it you can already imagine it you're envisioning where you're going to be. Oh yeah and it's it's a dream come true and when this first started it was a dream that I couldn't see still so now seeing it is amazing amazing all these people down here of course we have dozens of volunteers who come down every single day we have the walls up I think the roof will be coming uh, in a few weeks time the basement is in Uh, I don't want to worry you is there a part of the house you'd like me to stay away from Maureen given the the lack of skills I have it's a free-for-all. I, I, my house will always be safe for anybody who comes near it. So Now, just before we let you go, you have your daughters down here. It's very important that, you know, one of the big things about Habitat is that everyone puts in 500 hours of sweat equity. You could just be doing this, but you're making sure your daughters are down here as well. Your oldest, 17 years old, down here for the day. Why do you want them to be part of the build as well? Just more motivation. As I said, some of these values and things I wasn't grown up with, yes, to have a home always secure for your family, but to be a homeowner 
and then to also be a woman who's empowered and you know becoming more empowering as you're a teenager you go through so many things and all the hormones and all the changes and just her alone has have has grown so much in the last few years just for herself and her confidence this does this does a uh, a major another major change in her life and I seen it she only worked one day last week with me in the build and just from that one day coming back today she's brighter she's smiling she's more confident in what she's doing she's not attached to my hip right now so I know it's a good thing on Thursday my other two younger ones will come not that they'll be able to build because of the age ages they are but just to be able to see how many people you know like they say it takes a village to raise a child it truly does. It takes a whole lot of women to build one house, too. You've given your kids a lot to be proud of today. And honestly, guys, I think you can hear the emotion in both of our voices. But we all know what it means to have that place of your own. And uh, I'll send it back to you for now. But I'm here all day. Maureen's here all day. And we're going to try to wipe away some tears. Unless I, of course, hammer myself, which is a possibility. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.